once again, let me welcome our guests. You are our guests, and you are welcome. Uh, we've been going through the book of Exodus. I'll pray in a minute, but um, we started just last week, and this is the second one, and it's going to take us a few months walking through the book of Exodus. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come with humility and rejoicing all at the same time. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the presence of God here, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, working your work that we might increasingly look more like Jesus individually and as a church, that we might grow in loving God, building others up, and serving our city or wherever you've placed us, that you may be glorified. And so please show us a bit more of yourself as we come to your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I said, we have been going through uh, the book of Exodus. Why? We have been going through the book of Exodus more than, because more than anything, we're here. We want to know God. We want to know God and walk with him. That's the whole point. The whole point of life is to know the creator who is also the savior and then know what he requires of you what he calls you to do, what he calls you to be. And with his help, by his spirit, be that and do that. And that is why we are walking through the book of Exodus. We want to know God. How do we want to know God? We want to listen to God. We want to know God by listening to God in his word. The Bible is not a textbook. The Bible is the word of God that he has given to us by his spirit through human beings, through issues that happened. That is why sometimes we are shocked that certain things are recorded in the Bible. But as we listen to God's word, whether it is read like Tina did beautifully for us, or it is preached, it is explained, it is studied together in Bible study, in one-to-one -one relationship, whichever context, as you listen to it, you get to know God. You encounter God. We get to know God again in his word primarily by watching his actions. You listen to him and then you watch his actions. So God speaking and God's action put together gives us a revelation of God. That's how we get to know him. It is the same, isn't it? If you have a friend, if you're getting to know someone, the way you grow in knowing them is listen to them, ask a lot of questions, and then watch the way they behave, how they do their things. Over time, you will have an idea of who they are. And the more time you spend with them, the better you get to know them. Just listen to them. And that's why I love to ask people questions, not just because or you want matter, as they say in English. But that is how you get to know people. Listen to them and watch their actions. Just so in Exodus, God speaks God acts. He does things. 
And as you watch closely, the Holy Spirit shows us who God is and how we are to relate with him, respond to him. Now, last week, I did mention, if you take the whole book of Exodus, you can summarize it. Indeed, the whole book of the Bible, you can summarize it, summarize it in Exodus chapter 6 and verse 8, uh, uh, chapter 6, 6 to 8. Let me read for you again. It says, therefore, say to the Israelites, listen to how God begins, say to the Israelites, what? Say to the Israelites that I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will save you. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hands to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. And then he finishes off, I am the Lord. I want you to know me. So basically, he says that, look, I introduce myself. I am the Lord. I'm going to save you. I'm going to rescue you. You are under bondage, slavery. You're not serving me alone. You're serving others. You're serving something else. I will save you. And then I will be your God. You'll be my people. That's an intimate language. That's like the language between a husband and a wife. When I say to Gifty, my Gifty, and he, she says to me, my Sam, that's an intimate language. I'm hers. I belong to her and I belong to her alone. It's not just um, you are mine and like you go off to do anything. No, no, no. You are mine. Among all the women in the world, you are mine. It's intimate. God says you will be my people and then I will be your God. That's a relationship language. Deep relationship language. You will serve only me. If I'm your if, if, if I'm yours and you are mine, then you serve me only. And then I'll reward you. And ultimately, we know that God will reward us not just with heaven. The reason heaven is special is because God is there. He will reward us with himself. We will have him. We will have him. So how do you respond to a God like this as he begins to show himself to you? Chapter 2 tells us a lot. Number one. You see God in the fact that God preserves baby Moses for God's purpose. If you read from verse 1 to verse 10, God preserves baby Moses for God's purpose. Now, this is what we are told by the end of chapter 1. If you remember from last week, by the end of chapter 1, we are told this. Pharaoh ordered his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born... You must throw into the Nile, but the girls let them live. Don't ask me why. But every Hebrew boy, kill it. The girls, they can go ahead and live. And you have to hold that. So that by the time we get into chapter 2, something incredible, in fact, very, very funny, will be happening. A man called Levi. Now, let's not even go into it. 
because that's a whole news altogether. Levi, that's a priesthood line, isn't it? But let's not go there. We are told that a man from Levi, called Levi, married a woman from the same particular group who was also um, of the lineage of Levi, and then they have a son. They have a son. And the child was so good to look at. It was like when God created the world, it's actually the same word, when he said God looked at everything and it was good. There's something similar there. They looked at their son and he was such a good to look at, beautiful, like God's creation. So the mother said, ah, no, no, even though Pharaoh has said that people should get this child and throw the child into the Nile so that the child will either drown or the crocodiles will have this child, I'm going to keep this child. And so she kept the child for three months. And after three months, this child will cry, people will hear, and they will come and kill the child. Three months' work wasted. And so this is what she did. She then decided that she's going to weave a small basket and then put in it some kind of thing that will not let, her, that will not let water come into it. A small basket. It's very interesting that that word basket is the same word for Noah, ark. Noah's ark. The same word. And so it's like the way God saved Noah through the water, he's going to save someone else through the water. Well, that's beside the point. And so the mother does this and then places it where? In the river Nile, the very same river that they said the children should be drowned. They put uh, the child in that. And then somehow among some reefs, and guess what happened? Pharaoh's daughter. Now listen, it is Pharaoh, her father, who has given the command that every Hebrew boy should be killed. She comes there. I don't know what she was going to do there, so don't imagine things. But she was there maybe to wash down, we're told. And she would come with her servants. And so when they came, the servants were walking around, beautiful girls, and Pharaoh's daughter sees a basket just floating on top of River Nile and said, bring it to me. And then they bring it um, to her. And they opened it, and a boy, a boy who was crying. And somehow, motherly instincts kick in within Pharaoh's daughter. And she has a humobro, pity, on this child. And then takes this child. Now, it's as if the writer wants us to see that it was the daughter of Pharaoh who had given the command to kill every boy who found this child. So let me show you verse 5. The daughter of Pharaoh, we are told. Verse 6. She, the daughter of Pharaoh, took pity on the boy. Verse 7. Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 8. Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 9. Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 10. Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 10 again. Pharaoh's daughter gave the boy the name Moses because I drew her out of what? This is Pharaoh's daughter. You are supposed to read this and laugh. What is God doing? The man who says, kill the daughter, gets the boy, and cares for the boy. Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter, not Pharaoh's servant. Pharaoh's daughter. And it is River Nile. That's where they're supposed to kill, not be saved. 
and it gets even funnier and interesting. Moses' sister, this little boy's sister, was standing there according to the plan, sees it, and then um, quickly, boldly, really, Pharaoh's daughter, runs to Pharaoh's daughter and said, can I get you a nursing mother for this boy? If she was a Ghanaian, you know what you're doing. You are such um, literally a bad girl. But she wasn't a bad girl. She was bold. And then she says, yeah, go, get me one. And then guess what? Guess the mother of the baby. And then she comes and says, would you nurse this baby? And I will pay you. <laughs> You are supposed to give birth to a boy and let the boy be killed and possibly you be punished. But not, you hide the boy, you put a boy on an iron, now you're going to feed your own son and be paid for it. This is like maternity leave with pay. <laughs> and so it goes. Oh, isn't God amazing? What can stop him? You come against him, and he will use the same weapon for his purpose. So the child grows up, and the child has Egyptian skills, Egyptian education, educated at the University of Egypt, then ancient Egypt. He learns royalty, but he's a Hebrew boy. He has grown up there, but legally he's a child of Pharaoh's daughter. What is going on here? When God sets out to keep his covenants and save his people and bless his people for the sake of his name because he makes a covenant with himself, he is so faithful that nothing will stop him. Nothing will stop him. The whole world can come against God. He doesn't go like, as Ghanaians will say, the Americans, and uh, you may not get this, yeah. Ye, when a Ghanaian says ye, it means that the person is really scared. I don't know what you will say. Ye? No, God doesn't say that. God stands and welcomes the challenge. And then he uses the same thing for the purpose that he has set out to accomplish. It's true that his people who are in it oftentimes don't understand it. And so we complain, yeah, but forget about that for now. For now, this is what we see. Pharaoh's agenda becomes part of God's means. River Nile becomes God's channel. Moses' mom, who was a slave at this point, becomes someone who is working to be paid by Her Majesty the Princess. And we don't say Princess Majesty. Whatever. You get the point. God. That's the way he acts. Every means for the sake of his people, for the sake of his name. The right response is for us to laugh and be amazed at the same time. Children of God, when you see the Father act, and he acts through the events of this world, when you lift up your eyes a little bit off you, sometimes we are too absorbed in our own little problems, but when you are able to lift up your eyes a little bit above you, you know what? In spite of you, can laugh and be amazed all at the same time. Nothing is going to change God's plan. No one can. No one will. What else is God showing us about God? Number two, 
God saves his people God's way, not man's way. God saves his people God's way, not the ways of human beings. God saves his people God's way, not man's way. So the story continues. Nearly 40 years has passed. Now you read chapter 1 and chapter 2, and, or even within chapter 2, and you think it's just yesterday. It's about 40 years now. And Moses is a grown man. Moses now has education. Moses is deeply connected in the royalty. He's a royal. He's a prince of Egypt. Moses is possibly wealthy. Moses is trained. Moses is not like any other person. Hebrew blood, but Egyptian in the way he thinks and sees things and does signs and math and Egyptian and whatever. This is a learned guy. So what do you expect? What do you expect of such a guy? Because by this time, he knows that he's a Hebrew. He knows it. I mean, something has happened. He knows that. We see that in the text itself. So we would expect that now Moses is going to position himself to save his people, save my tribe, isn't it? Oh, yeah. That's what Ghanaians do. So I'm surprised nobody is responding. <laughs> because when we push you, if you are in a family, nobody has been to school, everybody is languishing, there's a small money, usually what do we do? We push one who is very promising academically, and when you finish, you take care of all of us. That can be burdensome. But at least, it's the Ubuntu kind of thinking, isn't it? We're just going to push you, then when you get there, remember us. If you don't remember us, we'll curse you. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what we're expecting to happen. So Moses realizes that he's, he's a Hebrew, and then something happened in verse 11. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his people were and watched them in their hard labor. His people were and watched them in their hard labor. And so Moses decided that with his own skill and power and connection and influence, he's going to help his people. And so he saw this Egyptian harassing a Hebrew person, and what does he do? He saw an Egyptian beating, verse 11, a Hebrew one of his own, looking this way, looking that way, seeing no one. He just hit the guy with all his energy, whatever he was having. And the guy falls down and dies. And you know, Egypt, the north of Africa, has a lot of sand, the Sahara. So he just buries the guy in the sand so that nobody sees it. And I expect that you, the Hebrew, you see that I'm helping you. I'm really saving you guys. The result of his action was a disaster. Number one, the people he wanted to help rejected him. Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Who are you? Because perhaps in their mind, you are an Egyptian as well. But even if you are not, you have gone to sit there and enjoy yourself. Now you are coming to talk complete nonsense here. You know, leave us alone to handle our matter. They rejected him. And then the other one is that he receives a death warrant from Pharaoh. Pharaoh hears it, and he wants to kill him. A death warrant has been issued. Remember that Moses was well-intentioned, so don't crucify him. He wanted to help his people. His way, as he has 
known it. But here is the thing. God's people will be saved, not through Moses' way, but through God's way. It is God who will determine the salvation of his people and the means of the salvation of his people. No matter how well-intentioned a person may be, you do not determine how a person is saved. You do not determine how you are saved or anybody else will be saved. Let me give you an example. Oftentimes, if I have a, say, for example, somebody who is an ardent drunkard in my family, right? I will say to the person, stop drinking so that um, God will save you. Well, that is man's way, isn't it? Uh, because it doesn't work like that. God will save you so that you stop drinking. You stop becoming a drunkard anyway. I don't know if that makes a point, but you get it. There is man's way of salvation, no matter how well-intentioned, and then there is God's way. If you Don't argue. Whatever it is, that's what we're seeing. Moses tried, and it backfires. Now, why is that so important? Because you've got to remember the deepest problem. The reason why it can't be human beings' way, it has to be God's way because of the problem. The problem is slavery, enslavement. God's people are enslaved in Egypt. And later, when they come out of Egypt and they journey, you realize that enslavement wasn't just to Egypt. It was to themselves. They were enslaved to their hearts. They, were, they relied on themselves. When Moses went and wasn't coming, they had to come up with the golden calf. They always have to design their own means of relating with God. Because that looks so tangible and sensible to them. They relied on themselves. They, they trusted on other in other things to give them significance in the wilderness, in life. Things that were good. They relied on other things to give them self-esteem, satisfaction, a sense of security in love, a sense in life, a sense of worth. That is real enslavement. You can't do anything about it. That is the thing that controls us. If you are enslaved to your career, you can't even take a break. We are enslaved. Egypt was a picture of that. It beats us on our back. And if you think your marriage, for example, is the ultimate, you are enslaved by it. And that's why we can't even correct each other because I fear that she might get upset and... So, brothers and sisters, the point is that the real problem is that the enslavement of the heart and of the mind that no human being can help with, except God. Sorry, I scared the boy by screaming. That's the problem that is going on here. And that is why Moses, it wouldn't take you taking a rod and striking someone. I've got to act, and we'll see that in a minute. You cannot deal with our, the enslavement of our hearts to things and to people and the quest for self-worth and self-image and self-enhancement and our standing in society and how we crave for this so much that we will do everything we can. We love God, at least we say we love God, but these other things plus God will make it complete. No! Did you realize that any time Moses, going ahead of myself, appeared in front of Pharaoh, he says, let my people go. 
Was that what he said? Let my people go so that what? They might go to serve me. It's always together. That they might go to serve me. Now they are serving you. Now they are enslaved to things and so on and so forth. When you are freed, now you become, the Lord becomes your master. And now you serve him. It is only by serving him that I find true life. And I can be content. Whatever happens. So only God can deal with that. Let me push ahead. So all of Moses' experience, they will come together. God is going to use it. God is going to use being in Egypt. It wouldn't go waste. But God needed to teach Moses about God. And so, you know what? Moses fleeing into the wilderness, God's idea. God overseeing that. He's going to use it. And he gets to have a father-in-law called Reu, Jethro, other places we have called him, the same person. And a lot of things are going to take place. And also, you remember that in other part of scripture, I can't remember, so don't ask me. We are told that Moses was the meekest, humblest human being on the face of the earth, at least then, isn't it? How do you think Moses came there? It wasn't in the Egyptian palace. It was actually in the wilderness. When he started encountering God in the burning bush and so on and so forth and so forth, Moses learns God in a very special way. Now he understands. Now he will be the right spokesperson for God. Now Moses won't think when he returns, we'll see that sometime as we journey, he won't think himself as the savior. He would think God, Yahweh, as the savior. He, Moses, as the means, as much as the Lord had made him. Salvation is of God alone. God has to determine, and God has to determine the means. Moses is in a foreign land. It is in the foreign land that God will continue to do his work. We are told that what? Zipporah. Zipporah gave birth towards the end, right? The man gives the daughter in marriage, gives birth to a son, and Moses named Geshem. Why? Saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. <laughs> God is amazing when he takes us from our comfort zones, right? Uh, like he takes you and places you in a different country, different situation, and that sort of thing. We see a bit of that here. And there, there we become so dependent. We become so vulnerable. And all that we have is the Lord. When you are in your comfort zone, you tend to settle and think, you know, oh, as for Egypt, I know Egypt. That's why I can strike you and bury you in the sun. In the foreign land, I don't even know what is under the sun. The Lord did his amazing work teaching Moses salvation is of God alone. That's the last point. Salvation is from God alone. From verse 23 to 25. Now, I'm not going to read it, but let me, if you will look at it, let me show you something. Or I don't know if it will be projected, but let me show you. We are told, okay, that God rescues. Maybe I should just read it for us so that it will make a lot more sense. During those days, those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. 
and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So we are told that God hears. <clears throat> God, he hears, he heard it. He heard their groaning. God also sees, he saw something wherever he sat. And then God knows. Let me, let me quickly repeat them. God hears. You know, it is only God who hears the deepest cry of the human soul. We think that we know. We don't. He hears it. He, okay, to comfort you, when you cannot sometimes, uh, this is not the point of the passage, but just by the way, when you sometimes cannot even understand your own self, and it's like you're just groaning, you don't know what is going on. God hears, he hears, he hears the deepest things. He hears the deepest things you don't even know of. But with Israel in slavery, he had them. This is groaning for salvation. And God sees, he sees the real need. He sees the real need. He's going to show them in the wilderness. God knows that we have this deep need. He knows, God knows, he knows it. He knows it. Salvation is of him alone because no human being hears and sees and knows the way God does. Only God knows the deepest need of the human soul. If only God does, let God deal with it. God knows we need him. That's our deepest need. Well, he knows that Israel will need him. So he will tell them that, so I have come down. <laughs> To save them. To tell them that later. But there is something uh, on which I want to end. We are told that God remembers. He remembers his covenant. Now when you read that, it sounds like God forgot. Like we forget. Oh, I remember. I re did you say that to me? Yes, I did say that to you last Sunday. And you said we should come home at 3 p.m. And when we came, you were not there. Oh, I forgot. Now I remember. That's not that. When the Bible talks about God remembering, it means that God put in his covenant into action. How would you know God has remembered? It's only when you see him act in accordance with his promise. So God remembers. It's not human forgetting out of mind. It is God beginning to set things into action. He's going to come down. And he's going to come down because he had made a promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So the reason God is going to act is because of his covenant. He is faithful. He's got to keep his covenant. That is why he came. And you see that in the life of Israel, that if it had depended on Israel alone, God would have stayed there. But he comes because he's made a covenant and he is faithful. One day Moses is going to return to Egypt. Humbled, yet emboldened in the Savior, the Redeemer, the Judge. <clears throat> and he's going to come in his name and he will declare in front of the man from whom he was running, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they might worship me, serve me. He will return. The child who, was, who had death warrant right from birth. And even as an adult, they sought to kill him. And then he had to run away. He shall return to bring salvation to his people. Their enslavement, not only of Egypt, but also of their own hearts and mind, the chains are going to be broken. 
they are going to be free. He will come and save his people. Because his people are in, enslaved to sin. They are enslaved to the ambitions and self-image and relationships. And they are enslaved to fear and approval and worship and money and power. He's going to come. But here is the thing. Moses was only a picture of the true Moses. Do you remember in the, in, the, in the Gospels, the transfiguration, those of you who know the story, when Jesus went onto this mountain with Peter, James, and John, and there is a vision that the disciples saw, and what happened? Elijah and Moses came to Jesus, and they were talking to him. They were talking to him about his exodus, right? Whatever that means. But Moses, there we confirmed that whatever happened with Moses was actually reminding us of the Lord Jesus who is to come. He also will be this little boy whose life will be under threats. Death warrant. And when he was growing up and after he had grown up, they sought to kill him still. They sought to kill him. And eventually he's going to die. He, he had this death warrant on him not because he killed anybody, but because of those who had murdered, because of other people, because of the enslavement, because they wouldn't listen, because of them. That is why he came, the true Moses, so that he would liberate them. But he will liberate them and put them under new Lord, new master, God himself. That's why he received Christ as Lord and Savior. And so, brothers and sisters, if you are enslaved to anything, anything, any evidence of sin, what should you do now in the light of these things? This is what you should do. Cry out. We are told that the people of Israel, they cried out and their groaning came to the Lord. Cry. You know what crying out points to? That I can't, but you can. So I'm crying. When a child is crying out and they lift up their hands, what do you do? What is the child saying? Lift me up. I'm hungry. You, my mom, help me. Now, crying out is like that. When we cry out to God, we acknowledge that salvation is of you. Help only comes from you. You are the only liberator. You alone can set us free. We will try and the habit is not going away. The secret habit that we have. Only the Lord can help us. And so cry out. And how do you cry out? Pray. Pray. Pray your heart out. Pray and cry to him until he helps you pray because he alone can help you. Only Jesus, he died on the cross to crush that thing, that habit. And so in our Christian life, we point to the cross and say, on the cross, you told me that you dealt with my sin decisively and completely. May you release the power of the cross every day as I'm crying out to you for help in this particular matter. I've got this habit nobody knows about in the church or in my family. Would you please help me? Not because I fear that when it comes out, I'll be ashamed. No, but because you, Lord, I want to honor you and love you and serve you. You said I will be your people and you will be my God. Intimate language. I want to be that close to you and be your disciple and walk with you. And that is why, please deal with this. The cross sake, your covenant with Jesus sake. Would you please? I'm his people. I'm in him. Deal with it for me and set me free. Let's pray.
Father, we why don't you pray for yourself? Please, take a minute. We have only about eight minutes to be here. Take a minute and pray for yourself. If I were you, maybe not you, me. I want to cry out. I've been crying out since I started preparing this. Lord, please. Otherwise, this situation will drown us. We cry out. Use the circumstance, Lord. Salvation cannot be devised by me. I can only receive it by faith in crying out. And then when you have enabled me, then I can live. So help me. We are willing. Help us. We put our will at your disposal. Empower our will and quicken it towards obedience unto you. Break this enslavement from us. And help us to submit to only one master, yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.